0: This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM radio network.
1: Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, The No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgbeer.
0: Hello and welcome. Brian Weiss, Dean Radin, Roger Walger, Stanislav Groff, and Terence McKenna are just a few of the scientists whose orthodox beliefs were flipped by the irrefutable evidence that consciousness continues after we die. And this week, cognitive neuroscientist, entrepreneur and author, Mona Savani, PhD, joins me to share the 10 best books that helped flip her from being an aggressive defender of the dogma of scientific beliefs to a believer in spirituality and psi concepts. A former research scientist at the University of Southern California, Mona Sabani holds a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Southern California and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She's the author of the newly published book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, A Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe, which details her transformation from a die-hard scientific materialist to an open-minded spiritual seeker. Mona Sabani, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you, Sandy.
0: Mona you've said that the day your mother gifted you a library library bag is one of your favorite days from childhood
1: yes yeah I um, my mom was really big on on reading so she took us to the li- my brother and I to the library um, a lot ever since we were little kids and there was I think i just my loads from the library just kept getting larger and larger and so one day she decided you know like we couldn't carry them anymore in my little arms so she got me this um i mean now i look at it and it's kind of frumpy it was like a green velvet um bag corduroy velvet <laughs> like it was mixed materials and it had floral lining um this really at the time i thought it was cute bag to like carry my books and um it, it's just, it is, it's one of my favorite memories because I still have the bag in my closet at my parents' house um, and I love looking at it because it just reminds me of how excited I was to go to the library and I would just get tons of books, plow through them, return them, you know, and go back um, and just keep doing it. And going to the library was one of the most exciting things for me. I would scream with excitement. I was very nerdy. <laughs>
0: Well, you say that in your early and graduate school life, you read fiction, including science fiction and fantasy, but while in graduate school, you began incorporating science and evidence-based books to the rotation, and that it wasn't until your existential crisis and subsequent Mm -hmm. spiritual awakening in 2019 that you seriously turned to books on spirituality.
1: Yes. Yeah. I was, um, I think when I was young, most of the books that I read were fiction. Like I loved Anne Rice. Um, I loved, uh, Isaac Asimov, Stephen King, mm-hmm. fiction, um, and fantasy. And, and then, uh, and Sherlock Holmes <laughs> stories. I loved it. I love detective and murder mysteries and things like that. And, um, when I got to graduate school, um, I, you know, you kind of have to supplement your own teaching, um, your own learning. And, you know, you have classes and stuff. But when you when you're getting a PhD, it's really a lot of like your own research. So um, I kind of had to (laughs) use my free time to read um, material on what I was studying, which at the time was um, cognitive neuroscience. And um, in particular, I was studying psychopathic traits. So I still loved the reading because I would read about psychopaths and just antisocial behavior uh, you know I loved it but it wasn't fiction and actually a part of me was kind of sad that I wasn't able I didn't have the time to read fictions um until a few years later so that was sad did all, and that,
0: did, mm-hmm. did all that training um and understanding of uh you know psychopaths uh <laughs> make any difference to your reading of murder mysteries yeah,
1: oh yeah, of course. Um, I think, uh, I mean, every part of you influences other parts. So as I as I learned more, actually it was one of the fun things to do, especially when watching movies or reading books, uh, is kind of thinking about, did they accurately portray uh, psychopathic traits? Did they accurately portray like a classic psychopath? <laughs> because of course it's, the scientific literature can be obscure, Uh, And so I think authors sometimes just draw from what's colloquially known in the culture. And so I'm always interested to see how that lines up with the actual research. So that absolutely happened. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. So the 10 books that you have given as your list don't belong to any of the former categories. They are all inspirational. Some are science-based. Um, certainly, um, but we're looking at consciousness. We're looking at spirituality. We're looking at psi phenomena, etc. And especially where you know the ground, where we can ground that, as I say, in the science with the research as well. Um, I think your first book on your list is one that you say broke you open to the possibility of a spiritual dimension to life, and that was many lives, many masters by Brian Weiss which was published in 1988. This comes up quite a few times. I'm sure it does. It's,
1: it's yeah. such a good book and it's um, you know I mean now that I've read so many other books um, it's not but you know I revisited it recently and I was reminded of why it was so powerful. Um, after I read many more academic type books I remember thinking oh Brian Weiss's books were so much more story-based, narrative, um, Mm -hmm. you know, not not like an academic journal type thing. But when I revisited it recently, I thought, oh, I remember why this was so impactful because he actually, but he he does lay out in the beginning um, his credentials, his non-belief, his, I think he was an atheist. I think he didn't Mm -hmm. believe in any paranormal. And even though he's telling a story, an incredible uh, hard to believe story. Um, you know, he's kind of debunking or you know, walking us through his thought process along the way, and uh, and I really appreciated that. And his thought process resonated with how I thought I would think about it and how I was thinking about it as I was reading the book. And so I think that's why it's a good it's a good book. I still recommend it to people. Uh, I I, when I initially read it I mailed copies to people left and right I was like you need to read this tell me what you think of it am I nuts is sky nuts Um, and I still mail it to people because it's a nice uh, you know entry into it because it's a story but then I think he also does, I mean, it's not exhaustive because it's a small book, but it's enough to get you thinking. It's enough to get you thinking because you're like, yeah, this guy's pretty skeptical. He seems pretty Mm. well-educated. You know, he mentions other researchers that I can go look up and uh, it's enough to, to start you off. You know, it's enough to get you interested.
0: What attracted you to the book? How did it come into your life?
1: yeah uh i actually didn't know what it was about when i ordered it so i was watching or no, i was listening to a podcast by uh, chelsea handler the comedian she had a, like a limited series podcast around her her book which was not <laughs> about spirituality or anything at all but one of the episodes on her podcast she had laurel jackson on who's a psychic medium and it Uh, They mentioned the book. They didn't say what it was about. If I remember correctly, they just kind of mentioned, oh, uh, you know, Many Lives, Many Masters is such a good book. Everyone needs to read this book. It's a case study of a, you know, by a psychiatrist. Um, And she told this crazy story, actually, Chelsea tells the story of how she went to dinner with someone in New York, a friend who told her about the book and she arrogantly brushed it off and was like, that's ridiculous nonsense. Like, shut up, stop talking. I don't want to hear about this book. And then she gets on a plane after the dinner to fly to LA and then like in the, um, I don't know if it was in the back, maybe the pocket of the seat in front of her, or maybe on the side, she, the book was there. <laughs> and so she read it on the flight home from New York to LA. And she said, by the time she landed, she was like, everyone needs to read this book. And I just thought it was such an interesting story that I was like, oh, I got to order this book. I got to see what it's about. And um, at that point, I wasn't really, I was interested in, you know, psychic. I, was, I've, I had had really accurate psychic readings. So I was like, interested and curious and, but I, I hadn't dug into anything yet. Um, and so I trusted her as a, I was a skeptic. I was like, she's a skeptic. She doesn't usually believe in any of the stuff. Um, I just thought it was a crazy story. And so I ordered it on Amazon. I didn't even read the description. And when it arrived, I think it says on the cover past life regression, but I didn't know what that was. So it didn't it didn't mean anything to me i was just like okay and i read it and then as i started reading it i was like what am i reading what is this <laughs> like i was very confused about what was happening um, but i just kept read- reading it and and i was i was just shocked i re- i actually remember i just remember all the moments when i would like put the book down and i had chills and i'm like this is weird this is really weird
0: <laughs> mm, yeah yeah. Yeah, I can understand it. When I first read it, it was with a very kind of, you know, jaundiced eye, <laughs> I have yeah. to say. Um, book number two, Food of the Gods, The Search for the Original Tree of mm. Knowledge by Terry Terence McKenna, published mm. in 1992. It's a radical history of plants, drugs and human evolution. <laughs> what on earth attracted you to that one? Uh you know actually
1: i don't know why i ordered it um but i got so along the way as i started reading about spirituality and unexplained phenomena i i stumbled across the psychedelic literature um, because someone had told me oh do you know did you know that um people in psychedelics tend to have super normal Mm. things happen to them or paranormal, whatever you want to call it, unexplained things happen to them. Transpersonal is what I call it now. And, and I didn't know that. So I went to the literature to read about it. Um, and Terrence McKenna came up. And so I, I think that's why I ordered the book and you know, he was a um, ethnobotanist. He was one of the, him and his brother and a few others are one of the first ones to go down to South America and really integrate with the cultures down there, learn from them. And he says in the introduction to Food of the Gods, you know, I was a, he was a scientific materialist, physicalist, Western culture, you know, a believer. And um, he's like, I thought I was going to go down there and prove that all of this is nonsense. You know, he was just there to learn about the plants and the culture, but like prove that it was it was any magical thinking um was nonsense and so but he said he did psychedelics while he was there i think ayahuasca um and he said i was surprised to learn that there's a reality more real than this reality and that in fact what they believe is more real than what we believe in the west uh okay obviously i'm paraphrasing but um that was the gist of it and then you know ever since that uh so he became, he became a believer and he proposed um, a theory in the book about the human consciousness actually evolved by, um, apes, um, eating psilocybin mushrooms, or just, I don't remember if it was psilocybin in particular, but psychedelic plants, um, which would explain the huge jump in evolution that we've witnessed between what we were and where we are now, which is inex- inexplicable according to evolutionary biologists. So, so he explains all that. And then, um, which might be not that interesting to some people, but I loved it. Um, And he, in the later part of the book, he gets into, you know, everything that's wrong with Western culture. And I was reading this book on a plane, uh, flying, I think to and from seeing my brother in Indiana. And I was like, so i just loved everything he was saying that i was like making noises while i was reading the book i was just like oh my god this is so good like i didn't even know anyone on the plane and i was just making friends because i was like have you read this book this is amazing and he just you know because he talks about how it's kind of arbitrary how we decide what plants and drugs are good or bad like oh we banned the coca leaf which is used to make cocaine which is bad and addictive but the coca leaf is used for a number of other medicinal purposes that would be beneficial to us, but we allow coffee and tea. Um, And so he talks about all that and our, our, you know, patriarchal dominator culture, and how cultures that tend to do psychedelics are more partnership cultures. So I just ate up everything he was saying. I just thought it was wonderful. <laughs> it just brought so much more perspective. It actually pulled in and grounded the spirituality that I had been starting to read about into like, what does this mean for our culture um, and for our humanity?
0: Hmm. What's this Going to take a little sidestep here because um, you were an avid non-believer and then you had an existential crisis. You did a few years deep diving research, but but not necessarily with a completely open mind. I mean, you were really testing stuff, weren't you? At what point in that process did you read that book? Do you recall? I read that book
1: um I actually read that book after I I think I was start I think I was starting to believe I think it was quite a bit later I think I had actually written my already written my book um so it was it was last year it was a year ago it was a little over a year ago but Mm -hmm. yeah it was after and so um yeah, and that's actually now that I'm thinking about it, that was the era when I started to better, better ground. I found other literature which I had to go back in the edits of my book and and incorporate because I hadn't read it when I initially wrote the book. Um, but yeah, that era, like a year, a year and a half ago, is when I found this this literature of like other um, anthropologists, philosophers, ethobotanists, scientists who started, or deaf psychologists and historians, who started to ground the, um, these concepts of spirituality and the universe and life having meaning and tied to that is these events that we can't explain. Like, and how does that, uh, why is that shunned in Western culture? Um, why, you know, how is it accepted in other cultures? And so the whole cultural integration, I think started to happen around that time. Maybe Food of the Gods was one of the first books that started to do it for me. It was definitely one of the first, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. um And then from there, I just kind of looked into terence McKenna and who he knew and who he read in his work. And it just led me on this um, um cascade effect of finding others. And and I've really enjoyed that literature the most, honestly.
0: Mm-hmm. Really. So book number three, Supernormal, Science, Yoga and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities by Dean Radin, PhD. That's fairly recent, 2013. Mm -hmm. Um not that old.
1: Yeah, Dean Radin's an amazing um scientist. He I think he's a chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences um, in California. So they do actual scientific experiments on psi um, uh, phenomena. And so he wrote, I've read a few of his books. They're all really great. And he does a really good job um, similar he, he does a really good job tying everything together. So he talks about all the scientific research and he's such a good writer. Um, he explains the science and the statistics and everything really, really well. Um, and then he ties it into, uh, especially in that book, um, the spiritual aspect and kind of like, um, and, and that, I think before I had gotten to that book, I had trouble reconciling the two. I thought, okay, well, there's psychic phenomena, and then there's like all these spiritual concepts, but how are they related? Um, and some people believe they're not related. Uh, you know, I, I was so confused. And then his book helped, especially, yeah, that's super normal. It, it um, helped mm-hmm. tie together because he goes through the text of the, um, uh, which, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> the yoga, Pajanjali's yoga. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Has, yeah, it ties it to, um. Psy phenomena and walks through the statistics and everything. And for me, I needed things like that that also had science and numbers mm. and papers that I could go read on my own, which he puts in there and cites and explains in full detail. So I definitely needed something like that, and and he provided it. And so that was that was a beginning of oh wow, this is really um, there's really evidence for this.
0: Yeah, Dean Radin, you're right. I mean, he's uh, he's a very good writer, and he puts the science together with all the proof that you need, uh, mm-hmm. all the resources and references you need, and he still manages to write it in a way that is, you know, very easy to read for anybody.
1: Yeah, very yeah. easy, very pleasurable. He's funny, too. Yeah. <laughs> he's
0: yeah.
1: it's a funny book.
0: Mm. So number four, Cosmos and Psyche: Intimations of a New Worldview by Richard Tarnas, yes. PhD. That was two thousand and seven.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite books, even though it's a it's a it's a doozy to get through. Um, so, Cosmos and Psyche. So, I heard an interview with Richard Tarnas on the um, Buddha at the Gas Pump um, podcast, and it was one of those weird moments. I didn't know who he was where I had chills down my spine when I was listening to the to the episode, and I didn't really know why, but I was like, why is this guy so um, engaging, <laughs> like so interesting? But he talks a lot about, um, you know, similar ideas to what Terence McKenna had discussed in his book, but he took it even further because he He wrote um, a book before Cosmos and Psyche called uh, Passion of the Western Mind, where he he goes through the entire history of Western culture to how we got to where we are uh, through the scientific uh, revolution, the enlightenment and and all that. So he talks about, uh, you know, how those movements have informed how we think about science and spirituality and how we have separated them and but so eloquently. And so he mentioned Cosmos and Psyche in the podcast and I, and he talked about astrology, which, uh, and he says this and I and I agree. It's like of all of the topics um, for a lot of people, it's like astrology is like the last line. They're like, no, like I can accept karma. I can accept maybe psychic phenomena, but astrology, I draw the line <laughs> like it's wow. there. Um, it's like the last straw. And, uh, you know, I had had like, uh, one astrology reading ever. I didn't know that much about it. Um, but he described it in this really interesting way where he said, you're taking this concept you already believe, or like is described in spiritual texts where the universe has meaning and it has meaning for us. And there is meaning embedded in everything. And he, he describes it as, you know, just like, when you're reading tarot cards or you're reading coffee grounds uh, or you're watching, you know, a lot of indigenous peoples watch the pay attention to the wind, to the movement of the birds. Um, Mm -hmm. Why do we do that? Because there's meaning embedded in all of these things, which is a very hard concept to understand if you're coming from a materialist physicalist, it makes no sense, actually, if you're coming from that worldview. So Mm -hmm. you can't, uh, you kind of, like, I don't think I could have come across his work and accepted it until later at the point that I did because I was already starting to think about, okay, maybe it's more like Plato's universe where there's forms underneath, there's symbolism and not everything is reductive and um you know atomistic. maybe there are whole forms underneath, and once you understand that, it's easier to understand what people like what Richard Harness was describing in his book. And I thought, oh, this makes so much sense. So he's saying there's meaning everywhere. When you have a question, you need an answer. You can drop something on the floor and look for an answer. There's meaning in everything. And, um, and it just, it was beautiful. And he said, and that's how astrology works. It's not that the planets cause us to act a certain way. It's like, it's kind of like a clock. A clock doesn't make it to a clock. It just tells you what time it is. And he's like, astrology is like that. It doesn't Affect us, it just is representing what is happening, what the energies are. And um, you you know, certain people can decipher that just like they can decipher tarot or uh different grounds yeah. or anything. And it just made a lot of sense to me. And so I immediately bought his book, read it, devoured it. <laughs> I started learning astrology immediately. Um, I reached out to him, I was a big fan. So Cosmos and Psyche really um, you know, and he, he also, he talks about in the book and comes from a depth psychologist viewpoint, he was trained as a Jungian psychologist. So, um, it brings that perspective into, which I am really interested in as a neuroscientist in bridging neuroscience psychology and all this stuff. And so, um, it, it, it really resonated with me and, and it made sense that like our psyches, um, are part of the universe and the universe is part of us. And, the cosmos and psyche like so it just it just made sense to me um in a way that nothing else had until that point so it's like one of the mm. most transformative books i read
0: it's interesting in your write-up about it for the website you said that um that uh he he didn't you know he was a skeptic and then um he realized it held a value after tracking the movements of the planets to individual and world events over the course of 30 years after A suggestion from a colleague that astrological transits could be used to predict the types of experiences people would have on psychedelic trips.
1: Yes, so (laughs) the other reason I love (laughs) Richard Tarnas is because he ties all of my interests together. So the story that he tells was also convincing to me um, is that so him and Stan Groff who um, they were both at Esalen Institute in the Mm -hmm. 70s and I think Richard Charnes was actually Stan Grof's student, if I'm not mistaken. But he did his PhD on LSD and uh, psychotherapy. And they could find nothing that predicted what kind of experience someone would have on psychedelics. And on psychedelics, you can have a heavenly experience or literally you could be trapped in hell. Um, And nothing could personality tests, um, time of day, like nothing they recorded could predict what type of psychedelic session you would have. To this day researchers still don't have anything to predict what kind of session you'll have but at one of the uh, seminars in at esalen somebody suggested to them that they look at the astrological transits and just like everyone else richard tarnas and stan groff kind of like brushed it off and they're like that's ridiculous that's a pseudo whatever, we're not gonna even look at that. And I, I, eventually they did for whatever reason, they got convinced to do it and they had to learn how to do it. Cause you know, there weren't computers like there are now, where you could just, they had to actually calculate the transits. Um, and then they found that the, uh, so each of the planets have archetypes associated with them. You know, like Venus is like Venusian beauty, love value uh, values. Uh, you know, Uranus is like revolutionary. Um, neptune's like spiritual anyway so the they found that the outer planets when they made aspects to people's inner planets whatever archetypes were represented by those planets and by the aspects would come up in people's psychedelic sessions so like um uranus uh, which is revolutionary um, for example they might have scenes of like revolution while they're it under the trip or Saturn which can be constrictive um they could have a feeling of being somewhere dark where there's like a lot of pressure on them so they found a correlation and then they tracked it over 30 years and I, I reached out to him actually initially just to see if they had published that <laughs> so I could read it but I think he said they're currently working on on publishing that so
0: I'm still waiting for wow it. well there's a lesson to us all if we're going to take a trip make sure you get your chart done first yes Okay, so book number five, another one that was pivotal in your journey, The Flip, uh, by Jeffrey Krippel, PhD. This was just published in 2019.
1: Yes, so uh, Jeffrey Krippel is um, the Chair of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Rice University and oh my god, what another brilliant writer. If you ever want to read just literal velvet um, on on your brain, (laughs) read one of his books. So he, he's just unafraid to talk about anything. <laughs> and I just love that about him. And the book, The Flip, is actually about scientists who have flipped their worldviews. Uh, so obviously very relevant to me. I think I came across this a little bit later around the time I was reading Terrence McKenna's. I basically hit this period where I started reading all the people from Esalen, <laughs> all their books. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so uh, Jeffrey Kripal um, works... I think he still does with the Center for Research and Theory at Esalen. And so he, uh, the book tells a few stories about scientists who have have flipped, Um, you know, and he talks about how our Western culture and our scientific materialist paradigm, you know, they call these things impossible because the worldview uh, doesn't allow for them to exist. So they're impossible. And it's like, until it happens to you. And then once it happens to you, you can't deny it anymore. It's so powerful and so meaningful for you that uh, you know, it's almost like your worldview becomes secondary um to your experience. And so he he talks about how scientists flip and how it's ridiculous that, and I agree, that Western culture calls these things impossible when they actually happen to most of the human population uh currently as well as throughout all of the history of humanity. And so um, I think he calls them typical human experiences. And I borrowed that for my book too, because after, by the end of it, I, I was like, these are typical human experiences. People just deny them, they don't pay attention to them. We don't have explanations for them, but they happen all the time. And I think reading his book really helped me, you know, coming from somebody so smart, very well thought, every argument was so strong. Um, really helped me have a stronger foundation. Uh, like it actually gave me more courage to accept my my own flip, and it really gave like a. Um, I think I was I had lost my identity, and I hadn't really found a new uh, group. And then when I read the book, I was like, oh, "There's." There's other flipped flipped scientists.
0: Other flippers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, other flippers. (laughs) So I think it really helps me um, stand on uh, solid ground again.
0: Mm. Now, he wrote two books with that title, Mm. but different subtitles. The first one, Epiphanies of Mind, Mm. and the second, The Future of Knowledge and Who You Really Are and Why That Matters. Mm. Did you read them both?
1: No, I read one and I don't, I don't know how they're different or I don't know. remember, I was trying to see if I could see it, but I can't, I don't remember which one it was. Um, I think it's, I think it's the knowledge one. Um, because he does talk about, uh, what is the future of knowledge? How do yeah. we decide what is knowledge? Um, and he, and I agree with him. He says that while we've placed a lot of emphasis, he, we've confused technological advancement, uh, with deciding that science is the only thing <laughs> that can move us forward, um, and yeah. that is the only thing we can count on for knowledge. we've confused that. Um, but you know, actually, we need the humanities, um, as well as like there are many things science cannot answer. Um, and we need other fields to uh, help us get to these these bigger mysteries. And he talks about that, and um you know, moving forward, hopefully we can integrate the different fields, which I also argue for in my book.
0: Mm. Okay. Number six, the stormy search for self by the world's foremost authorities on the subject of spiritual emergence, Stanislav Groff and Christina Groff, published in 1990. And what an amazing help their work has been to so many.
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, man. Yeah, that was that book was recommended to me by Richard Tarnas. And um, and it's interesting because I didn't know how much I needed it until I read it. <laughs> and I didn't realize that I was having a spiritual emergency and that, again, that this was a whole thing that happens to people a lot and or to many people. And that they're they're At that point, I was oh I was stable, <laughs> but that it would have been nice to know that there were resources available. Um, during that confusing time in the middle of your worldview has been flipped, but you haven't found a new one that you're comfortable with. You're like floating in the ether. It's very confusing. And, um, it would have been useful to have the book then, but regardless, uh, it's an, he talks about, um, his wife, uh, Christina's spiritual, um, awakening in the book and everything they went through the symptoms and how they formed this, um, I think it's called spiritual emergency network or something like that. Um, but they made a whole community, um, of support for people who are going through, um, psycho-spiritual crises, essentially. Um, it was extreme. Yeah, it was just extremely helpful. And that was also the, um, that was like one of the first books I started to read from Groff's work. Uh, obviously I've read many more since, but, uh, where he talks about, I don't remember if he he probably did because he does in most of his books but he talks about his perinatal matrices which um are like these four stages of birth that correspond actually with <laughs> um these like f- um the four outer planets of the universe um and that's why like the, they're all connected of course they're all connected um and that's what you experience in psychedelic trips and so he talks about the, the research that he did um and it's just it was just a a great introduction to groff and uh and he's one of those he was one of those that he was a psychiatrist he was you know um materialist uh just a typical skeptic uh you know like science is everything and then you go and read his you know multitude of books over the course of his life and you can see his transformation um and who wouldn't be transformed when you read the things that he's experienced and facilitated in these psychedelic sessions or like later the holotropic breathwork sessions?
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah,
1: it was really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, that's, and that is a book that comes up uh, fairly frequently, too. Um, number seven, Transcendent Mind, Rethinking the Science of Consciousness by Immense Sparras and Julia Mossbridge. Uh 2016 that was published.
1: Yes. Um yeah, I Julia Mossbridge is a cognitive uh, neuroscientist as well. And she's written a book, um, the Premonition Code on precognition. Ah, yes. yes. And I I think I reached out to her at some point in this journey. Um, she was one of the people I spoke to. She was, you know, lovely. And I so I read her book, um, and Transcendent mind sort of similar to for me it was sort of similar to um, to supernormal, to Dean Raiden Supernormal, because but um, but it went it went even further. And so they they lay out a lot of these um, you know odd near death experiences, um, psychic phenomena, all these various things. And then um Imanth Bruce is a psychologist and she's a cognitive neuroscientist, so they come at it from both uh, angles to try to, you know, debunk or just look at it. And it's a very, um, fair book, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty like, I kind of, I was thinking when I got it, that it's probably going to be favoring, um, or maybe not as not have as harsh criticism or what, I don't know why I just thought maybe it would be that way, but it wasn't at all. It was, it, it was, um, it was super fair, it was really well explained had a lot of interesting case studies but then also summaries of bigger studies uh, again really really well referenced i think it was commissioned by the american psychological association if i'm not mistaken so it was actually um yeah uh, funded by an official organization um from the psychology <laughs> and so that that one Actually, I lent that book to a neuroscience colleague recently because I, who's not a flip scientist, and then we had breakfast, and he's now a flip scientist. (laughs) So that just speaks to how um, powerful Mm. that
0: (laughs) is. Yeah. Yeah, they they certainly examined a lot of scientific literature, concepts including mediumship, out-of-body and near-death experiences, telekinesis. Uh, apparent versus deep time, mind-to-mind communication. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and Ooh.
1: it's it's um, a lot of these things are, you know, people tend to explain away with psychological or neuroscientific explanations, um, and we're not all experts in all fields of <laughs> psychology and neuroscience. So um, it's it was helpful to read a book like theirs to know uh, to supplement my own knowledge um, you know to be like oh someone has really looked into this like i already know x y and z would happen like for a near-death experience if your heart stops like your brain stops within 10 to 20 seconds and people who say that it's residual brain activity like that just doesn't make any sense according to what we know <laughs> to neuroscience there's just no way mm-hmm. if your brain is flat that anything is going on unless our models of the brain are wrong. But um, yeah, but so those are things I know, but they were able to supplement all that. And it was, um, so that was great to have.
0: Mm, yeah. Book number eight, Other Lives, Other Selves, a Jungian psych- psychotherapist discovers past lives. That's by Robert Roger, Roger um, PhD and that was published 1987. So quite a few years ago.
1: Yeah, I really, really loved that book. Um, that was one of the, as I was mentioning with the the Brian Weiss, um, it was after I read Roger Bulger's book that I realized how narrative based Brian Weiss's books were, because it was, it's a much more academic approach. He's a Jungian depth psychologist. So he, um, explains how, I think he was also skeptical and then kind of just looked at past lives and did the regressions in his patients and tried to explain it with Jungian psychology, um, and then eventually by the end of the book, he's just like karma, <laughs> like, he's just like, he has a spiritual model because it's just so hard to explain in any other way. And, um, and he had just like amazing stories. And what I really love about, which I know that it's not the most, um, it's susceptible to the rigorous scientific testing, but I like past life regression because it, it's, allegedly so healing for so many people. And what's interesting is it 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 clearly shows, I think holotropic breathwork does this also, but it starts to show the connections between your um, psyche, your kind of like your issues in this life, and then also your physical body. And in, it's hard to explain, but he does a great job of showing it in the book, like, oh, you died in a past life from... I don't know a spear to your stomach, and then you've had like stomach issues like all this life. But once you go move through that past life in therapy, your stomach issues are miraculously resolved after like 30 years of nothing working for you, um, or you know things like that. I think are really uh, really interesting and just those were the kinds of things that I was like, this is this is insane. <laughs> like, <laughs> what does this even mean? And those are the questions, though, to me are very interesting, even if you don't believe even if you don't believe in the past lives, um, the phenomena on its own is interesting. Why is a patient going under a very relaxed state, recalling a story, a random story, healing a physical condition? Like (laughs) that's odd Uh, and it doesn't, and based on our models, uh, you know, we could call it placebo effect, but it's just, just so many, so many issues. Anyway, I think it's interesting to investigate, um, and I loved his work. It also um, attuned me, it turned me on to Jungian psychology, which um, ties into a lot of this uh, spirituality and everything. So this, I, I really, mm-hmm. I, he has like a little bit of a more academic approach, and I appreciated that.
0: Yeah. Book number nine, The Happy Medium, Life Lessons from the Other Side by Kim Russo, published in 2016. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. That was one of the first books I I read on this. uh, So after Brian Weiss's book, this is one of the first books I read because I remember, so when I was making my friends read Many Lives, Many Masters, one of my friends was like, oh, this sounds really familiar to what Kim Russo says on her show sometimes. So she has a show or she had a few shows, Celebrity Ghost Stories and a haunting of, and so on those, she would like go to a celebrity's house, they would have a haunting, and then she would whatever, do her thing. Um, And sometimes she would say things like about karma or past lives. And so I started watching those shows and then I ended up reading her book. At that time, I was also really interested. So as I mentioned, I had had very accurate psychic readings. So I was really interested in, okay, let's suspend disbelief. Let's just pretend my worldview is wrong. Uh, let's say they're accurate. Um, How could this be happening? And how is the, you know, since I'm a neuroscientist, I'm like, where's the signal coming from? How is the person perceiving it? Um, Are their actual ears? Like if they say they're hearing something, is their actual like auditory cortex being activated? So I was interested in their personal experience. I also wanted to know if they grew up in families that taught them to be that way, like it was just passed down. So, um, for the book, I started interviewing psychics, but before I did that, I read Kim Russo's book and Laurel Lynn Jackson's book. Um, and it's just really interesting cause they talk, you know, they talk about how they from childhood, many of them tell the same story from childhood. They just had this gift, um, usually runs in the family. Parents did not teach it to them or encourage it. A lot of times they would learn to keep it to themselves. And then, you know, at some point in development, it. When they go to school, it gets tuned down, um, and then comes roaring back. But I really liked her book because she she's really. I mean, the TV show makes it look like she's very good. I mean, she seems like a very good uh, psychic medium. And uh, she, but I like how she talked about how she had to work at it and like practice and learn signs and symbols and um, do all this work. And she even did past life regression. She learned how to be a facilitator um and I just thought it was so fascinating the way she would describe which is what I really wanted to know and I'm still really interested in what in what they perceive um and she just says like oh you know I can see a bell come in it does but I don't know what it means like it has meaning for the person and because that kind of ties back again to that idea of like played forms underlying forms and symbols um and things that have meaning in the universe so how they can perceive that is really fascinating to me. And she talks about all that, which I thought was, which is just
0: great. <laughs> mm. Well, book number 10. Um, I've got a few things to say about this book. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it. I think, I haven't actually counted, but I think this is probably the book that so far has been on more lists than any other book, uh, um, or if not, quite close to the top of it it Mm -hmm. is it is a book that comes up so often and you know I consider myself widely read and well read and confess that I'd never read it so Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago I decided I had to read it and Mm -hmm. now I understand Oh, I understand why it's on your list and so many other people's and the book is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and oh my god what a book so tell us about your reaction to this book
1: yeah so oddly enough i I was assigned this book as a homework assignment in graduate school for my first uh, I think it was a cognitive neuroscience class and which turned out to be a very interesting activity I remember reading it and thinking I was being so confused why are we reading this book um, but what happened was we went to class and our professor uh, asked us after reading that book, uh, what do you, how do you feel about cognitive neuroscience? How do you feel about how we reduce the brain um, to sensory and motor inputs and outputs? And does that make what we do and learn more or less interesting? And we had this just really interesting discussion about it. And, you know, everybody, everybody said it makes it more interesting because, uh, how do we get from th- that reductionist view to something so magnificent like uh, Viktor Frankl's book? And so his story is that he's, um, he was a, I think he was a psychiatrist um, yes. before. Yeah. And um, and then he ended up in one of the uh, concentration camps in world war II. and being, you know, um, a physician, he's very observant and observed that a lot of the, people who survived or the difference between the people in the camp who survived and those who didn't were that they had um, hope or they could imagine a positive future. Um, They could, you know, see themselves in that future, you know, in a happy place out of this camp and the ones that couldn't, um, you know, were less likely to make it. And it was so interesting because it really is a really great example of how your like there's a lot of in pop culture these days talk about the brain the brain the brain but it's really a good example of how your mind your mind which is separate from your brain or whatever part of it but how your mind can drive behavior and have such an influence on um literally your physical being right like and of course it can express itself in behaviors and actual physiology there's different ways but it's, I just thought it was so beautiful. I, and I, I think at that point in graduate school, I wouldn't have even, I think if I hadn't read the book, you really become so, um, scientific, so like skeptical, so reductionist that you lose sight. I think for a while you lose sight of like humanity, (laughs) everything becomes very, very reductionist and it can be hard to zoom back out. And so, um, that book helped do that and keep the bigger picture which is like what are we doing all of this for anyway it's to understand humanity and like what makes us human even though we spend a lot of time studying animals and comparing ourselves to animals it's really about we really should be spending more time focusing on what makes us different as humans um and i think that book was such a good example um because it is a rare it is a human ability to be able to imagine the future um we think we don't know uh we don't believe animals can do that but it's it's a it's a strictly uh human ability to be able to imagine the future imagine yourself in it imagine it to be positive or negative and imagine something that is different from what you have experienced thus far um very human and so and how that can drive you forward to survive it's beautiful <laughs> it's beautiful yeah
0: and you know what i loved um you know, for those who haven't read it, the book is in two parts. The first part is his, you know, chronicle of his experiences and observations, and the second part he's talking about his um, theory of logotherapy. Logotherapy, which you know is a kind of was considered, I believe, a third, a third of the you know Viennese psychotherapy sciences. Right. And um, what was so interesting for me in reading that, because, you know, I'm a student of psychology and I love uh, how the mind works, um, was the way that logotherapy is so different, so different from other therapies. You know, there's no analysis at all in Mm -hmm. that. Um, But also, I think the way this man, you know, when you look at, when you read the book and you understand, you know, his life story I mean, he was a psychiatrist. He, was, he had a, um, a manuscript that he'd written as he went into Auschwitz, and mm-hmm. he thought he could take it with him and work on it, and they took it away from him, tore it up, and one of the things that kept him going was rewriting that in his head as he was. But when you think that that man, I mean, several times, he was on the verge of going to the chambers, mm-hmm. and something, you know, synchronicity, coincidence, something stopped him. And he came out of that arguably more together than most. And then he publishes this book that takes the world by storm and God knows how many years later, 80 years later, is still influencing people. You have to, when you hear all of that, you have to believe in some purpose to life, you know. I mean, his life obviously had a major purpose. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I believe that
0: now. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of research. (laughs) Yeah, I think anyone who reads that book will believe that too. At the end of it, yeah, it's a truly beautiful story. very inspirational,
1: and it reminds you. I think it's like a good reminder for you to um, stay hopeful and imagine positive futures. Yeah,
0: and find a purpose. I mean, I loved what he had to say about addiction, and you know, young young adults. You know, if they're out of work or whatever. If they find a purpose that has meaning for them, often they do not need the behaviors, you know, that don't serve them. They fall away because meaning is everything. Mm. Yes, it really is. It really is. Mm. So these books all gave a whole new meaning to your life. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And and (laughs) changed, changed the work that you do.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they you know, it changed my worldview, which changes everything. So, um, they made me a lot happier. Um, you know, I learned the value of spirituality, which I honestly thought was valueless before. And, uh, so I learned firsthand the value of it. And, uh, I also, I think, um, I talk about in my book, my culture, my mother, my grandmother all read coffee grounds and it's, uh, you know, I think as part of Western culture, you, you kind of tend to, you dismiss it, it's impossible. It's one of those impossible things. Um, and so it was kind of nice to, with these things, come back to my culture and um, my family with more of a open mind and with more acceptance and kind of to reconnect. So it's been very nice. And it did, it did um, yeah, make me look at my work and think, uh, is this meaningful? And maybe part of the reason I'm so unhappy (laughs) is maybe what I'm doing. So, I find
0: it. Yeah, oh, go ahead. As I say, I find it so interesting that your mother and your grandmother read coffee grounds. I mean, and then there you are, you know, steeped in science and pretty dismissive of it. But still, you used to have your mother read them for you. How did you reconcile that? I mean, was it like a guilty little secret that you didn't want to tell people?
1: Um. I didn't i didn't think about it uh it's like one of those cognitive dissonance things you just you just don't think about it you know it's funny i i don't think i was embarrassed of it at the time i think i talked about it i mean i didn't go around bringing it up but if it came up i think i would just tell people because she was so good and she convinced me you know at first i didn't believe it and then after years of having her read for me and my friends we would take notes I was like, I mean, there's just no denying it. The the lady's like more right than she's wrong. And she knows details that we don't, you know, my friends and I wouldn't even tell each other. And so there's just no denying it. So um, I, I think at that point I was actually, it's funny. Like I think after grad school, I became more, like once you had the PhD, I felt more responsibility <laughs> or something to be more scientific and be like, no, no, that's nonsense. But in grad school, I think I was just so amazed at her ability and I would tell people, I'd be like, oh, you don't even know. You should you should come to my house, my parents' house for a reading, you'll be impressed. Like I was much more open to it. And then, and then as the years went on though, I just, you know, your brain just gets more and more narrow and I, um, you get pulled into the science cult and then you get embarrassed to say things like that. And then you start hiding it. <laughs>
0: yeah so now that you are more open to it have you found that you have any talents in that direction um i have precognitive dreams which
1: is funny because i've always had them i just stopped paying attention to them but now i pay attention to them and i write them down every night uh, or every morning when i wake up um and they're not always useful sometimes they are sometimes they're stupid little things um, sometimes they're months in advance um, so I never know what it's going to be I'm not good at reading them but I have them uh, and I learned like I I've learned tarot uh, I'm still learning I learned just I'm learning astrology <laughs> um, and I my friends say that because uh, I'm practicing on them obviously that the tarot readings are good <laughs> but I don't know. Um, I'm not like my mom. So she tried to teach me I know some of the basics of reading coffee grounds, for sure. But um, finding the images. So it's interesting, we find different images, sometimes her and I. So um, I'm still working that out. But I'm definitely not. I don't know that that's my medium.
0: Mm. So tell me about the work you're doing now. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you're co-founder of a company called Pala, Pala? Yes. Pala a yeah. full-stack consulting company that uses behavioral and humane technology design to create consumer software products. So what does that mean? What are you creating? Yes.
1: Um, so... So Paula's actually two things. One it's um we're developing a product. Um it's me and two of, uh, co-founders and it'll be a technology product, but we're working on it. That's going to be capturing the world's wisdom in short form video, but like in little we're going to optimize it on the back end with um l- learning science. And in the meantime while we build that out, we I have uh, cognitive neuroscience, as well as behavioral design expertise. And there are these really, really accomplished developers. Um, but what we, what we wanna do, humane technology is, is the practice of moving away from technology um, as we've seen it right now, which is to steal your attention and keep it. But humane technology views attention as sacred and human attention is sacred and that we should respect it and we should design our technology to not steal our attention um and so a lot of you know social media and all those things will hijack your brain um to make it addictive to come back just like gambling machines just like um what you would find in a casino and we want humane technology might use cognitive biases to help you but it's never to like do something you don't want to do or to keep your attention. It's hopefully to help the technology align you with your values, whatever those are. Um, So we want to move away from the current model and behavioral design is just, it's, it's um, using technology to help you change your behavior, which is notoriously hard to change. (laughs) So there's a lot of uh, shortcuts and, you know, to um, cut through the cognitive biases that exist and to do that. So, so we do
0: that. (laughs) Oh, did I? Yes. <laughs> so last question. What are you reading now? Um, oh, my goodness.
1: You'll be happy to know I started rereading fiction. <laughs> I read my first fiction book in years. Um, it's called The Song of Achilles. It's wonderful. I really loved it. And the other, um, I'm reading the... Uh, psychedelic explorers guide written by james fadiman um that's about uh well it mentions microdosing but it's it's just about um how to take a good psychedelic trip uh i'm always reading a few books at once um and then there's another book that i'm reading oh it's by rupert sheldrake um who i cannot remember yeah i think it's uh oh i can't remember what it's called but like how to go beyond or ways to go beyond or something like that. But it's Mm. about spiritual practices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Love his work. Um, You have a newsletter that I want everybody to know about. It's the Brave New World of Psychedelic Science newsletter. Um, And you write about psychedelic renaissance and consciousness. Um, Tell people where they can find it, because I think it's a very good newsletter.
1: Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's on Substack. Um, If you, maybe I can link to it. Um, If you just Google a brave new world of psychedelic science, it should come up under Substack. Uh, Yeah, and I talk about um, psychedelics and mystical experiences and how they're healing um, and how they're forcing us to think about, you know, how neuroscience and psychology and spirituality are all connected.
0: Mm. Mona Sabani, thank you so much. Much for sharing your Thank 10 you. best list with the No BS Spiritual Book Club. It's been a delight. Uh, certainly, sign up for her newsletter. You can also find a sign up form on her site, which is Mona Sobani, S O B H A N I, PhD.com, and proof of spiritual phenomena. A neuroscientist discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe is published by Park City Press Inner Traditions. Is it out now or is it about to come out now?
1: It's about to come out. It comes out in the US August 23rd and maybe also in the UK August 23rd.
0: Ah, I should... Okay. Well, I've I've read the book. I've seen Mona. Thank you. Thank you Sandy, it's a pleasure. OK, well, that's it for me this week. Uh, I'm Sandy Sedgwick. I'll be back at the same time next week with another 10 Best Interview for the No BS Spiritual Book Club. And till then, it's goodbye from me.